What's up? And welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocere from aclearmind.com. All right, and welcome to episode number 30. This is a big one for me since my guest is one of the most iconic U.S. men's soccer players in history, and I'll get to more about him in just a minute, but I wanted to take this moment to thank you for listening to this podcast and ask that you rate the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and also write a review on Apple Podcast so that more people can benefit from what these athletes are saying. Whenever you write a review, it makes the podcast a little more visible, so I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Just scroll down when you get to Clarity for Parents of Athletes on your Apple Podcast app and you'll see where you can write a review. So of course, also please share the podcast with others as well to make their parenting even better when it comes to raising their athlete and even just really enjoying life in general. There's so many great points from these athletes that anyone with or without children can really benefit from. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the guest for this episode is one of the most iconic U.S. men's soccer players in history. Kobe Jones played in the 1994, 98, and 2002 World Cups for the U.S. He is the all-time leader in caps for the U.S. men's national soccer team with 164 appearances from 1992 until he retired from international play in 2004. His club career started in England with Coventry City, then he went to my home country of Brazil and played with Vasco da Gama, a Rio club, and then ultimately came back to his hometown of Los Angeles, played for the Galaxy from their first year in the MLS, or really the first year the MLS existed at all in 1996, until he retired in 2007. In this interview, Kobe lets us into his family life, including his days as a youth soccer player, and how his parents supported him during his athletic journey. And he also takes us through his college days at UCLA and how he made that team as a walk-on, which was something that I didn't know about until this interview. And he also talks about his approach to parenting his two sons during their athletic journeys and what sports they play. And of course, he has advice for other parents out there who are raising their own athletes. In this interview, I also introduce what I call lightning round questions, which the answers were a little longer than lightning, but it was really, really cool to hear a little bit more about Kobe in depth. And I asked questions like who the best player he ever played against was and the most difficult stadium for him to play in and what his dream job would be if he never played soccer professionally. So I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and all my episodes. You can always contact me at Gabe, G-A-B-E, at aclearmind.com or go to my website, aclearmind.com, and you can sign up to be in my community. So as always, please stay tuned to the end of the interview, and I'll give you my takeaways where I delve in a little bit deeper into some things that Kobe said during the interview that really resonated with me. All right, enjoy. All right, Kobe Jones, thanks so much for being here. How's it going out there today in L.A.? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's nice. It's 72 degrees and sunny. Typical, right? Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's good for you. It's, uh, it's snowing here in Albuquerque. My, there was you know, very, very little snow accumulation on the ground today over here, and we had like a two-hour delay for my son's school, so you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm I'm feeling your warm weather and I'm bringing it over <laughs> here. So I appreciate you sending it. So I appreciate your time today. You know, I've really watched you over the years. For me, I think there are two major turning points in U.S. soccer history. One is, for me, the 94 World Cup when it changed and then when MLS started. And you came in at that time in in your peak, um, but you started playing soccer at a time in the U.S. when it wasn't really like the sport to go to. So how did you get into soccer and where did you grow up? Who introduced it to you? Just I'll let you take it away from there. Right. Um, well, I was part of the, you know, that um, initial boom of soccer in the in the seventies. You know, where almost every kid in the neighborhood was just thrown into soccer as, with AYSO and one of the routes for parents to get the kids out of the house and just, you know, and play as much as possible. Uh, for me, it was one of those things where I was in the, the back seat of my parents' station wagon. And we were driving down the hill by the park and I looked over and I saw my cousin he was a year older than me. And I saw him, he was in the park playing soccer. You know, so it was one of those things where I, you know, typical, you know, five-year-old kid in the back, you know, start screaming at my parents, Hey, there's Corey, there's Corey. Can you, can, can, I want to go play with him. I want to go play with him. You know, that's, that always happens, you know? So mm-hmm. uh, my parents, uh, they decided, Hey, why not? So they pulled over. Uh, went over to the park, you know, and, and went out, asked the coach and said, Hey, can, can Toby join in with his cousin on the team? Coach said, sure. Why not? You can, you can join, he can join in, gave me a Jersey. And, and I went out there and I started kicking the ball around. You know, that's how, that's my initial introduction, you know, to the sport mm-hmm. was uh, thankful to my cousin, <laughs> you know, to, to be quite honest that he was playing in it. And, and it kind of went from there. I mean, the story kind of, touches on a couple of things, right? So different than today is, you know, well, number one, I was, you know, back of the station wagon, looking out backwards with no seatbelt on <laughs> first and foremost. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Not, don't do that uh, these secondly, days. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, yeah. Parents will get in trouble with that these days. Secondly, uh, the fact that, you know, the, the coach is just like, yeah, I gave me a Jersey and I'm going out and playing. My parents didn't have to sign like a thousand forms, you know, and it was mm-hmm. a different world and at a different time. But, uh, you know, I think a, a little bit lost nowadays with all the structure, you know, of the game. But, you know, it, it was uh, that was the moment, you know, that kind of just, you know, started everything. And was it love at first first touch of the ball? <laughs> I, I think so. You know, I, I don't particularly remember just like saying, oh, I love the sport, but I, I know I, I thought it was fun. You know, and that, that's what it was all about. I was a kid. I There's a few types of kids, you know, the ones that stand out, you know, you can separate kids and the ones that like to be very uh, methodic and, you know, kind of figuring things out. And I usually tend those are more towards, okay, I can sit down and they can play baseball and they can, you know, figure out all the little minutia and the details there. That wasn't me. I was more like, I just want to run. I want to kick and I want to run some more, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's why the sports I did growing up, it was track and soccer. You know, those are the ones I, I love. Uh, my dad, pushed me into other ones that I, I truly didn't enjoy and, you know, have a little resentment, you know, that, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but for me, it, it was always soccer and track. Nice. So I'm glad you mentioned a little bit of your family history. Cause I, you know, this is a podcast for parents of athletes. So what sports did your dad push you in and what were the sports that he did growing up? 
Hey, well, my dad, uh, he grew up in Mobile, Alabama in the South in the, you know, in the thirties, forties, fifties, you know, all, all that. So a very different oh, wow. world, but yeah. the sports, he, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's seen it all. My parents saw it all. Um, for him, what he participated in and his, his sports of love were, uh, as a kid, he played basketball, um, but he loved tennis. You know, that's the one sport mm. that he played all the time. So w- the w- sports that he kind of pushed me into were tennis. Like he had me taking lessons and, you know, those types of things. Um, mm. But then he, he kind of, the, the resentment and the forceful nature from him is when he forced <laughs> me to play baseball. You know, wow. <laughs> that just wow. was not my sport. You know, yeah. it was uh, for me a little too slow. You know, I was the kid that they said just stand up at the, you know, plate and take a ball. You know, take uh-huh. a few balls and try to get walked because I was smaller, you know, and then I was out in the outfield, you know, so it's just not enough activity for a kid like me that had a lot of high energy. Yeah, you need to move, man. I remember your pace, that's for sure. Um, so yeah. why, if your dad was more of a tennis guy and didn't seem like he was a baseball guy from what you said, why did he push you into baseball? I think he wanted me to try, you know, everything, you know, and, and participate in all the, all the different sports. Um, that's great. And, and I, and I, now as I'm a dad, you know, I, I agree with that. I think it's good to do at least test them out. But, you know, as a kid, you're just like, you have something that you love. You don't want to be, you know, distracted from it or, or kind of pulled away from it at all. So for, for me as a kid, I was kind of like, eh, I, I'll do it. You know, I don't enjoy it. You know, mm. and, and thankfully I only had to do it that one season and then I was done. Okay. Nice. And what about your mom? What were her sports if she did any? No, nah, mom didn't do any sports. <laughs> <laughs> she she was more of the uh, high, high society gal, you know, from way oh, back when nice. in the South. So, yeah, <laughs> she didn't do a whole lot of sports. You know, she participated in clubs and activities and, and those types of things rather than doing sports. A very, very different world. I don't. I don't want to say it now, where it's like, oh, oh, girls didn't do sports back then. But in reality, right. for the most part, it, it, it was a different cultural time, different cultural er, area. You know, where uh, it, it was, it wasn't really um, looked upon in a positive light. You know, for her to be doing sports. Wow. Yeah, I could see that, especially with so much repression in the South. Um, well, was she in the from the South? Yeah, yeah, both from they just came up from a town that split them. Say the town, the, the town split by the train track, you know, from the right side or the wrong side. My mom was from Mobile, Alabama. Mm. My dad was from Pritchard. You know, dad was from the wrong side of the tracks. My mom was from the, you know, the nice side. So wow. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the old story. So, how yeah. did they connect? Oh, uh, you know, parents are. I get 15 different stories all the time, <laughs> you know, but, but apparently, it, it, like, my mom was uh, in the same, like, club as one of my, da- as one of my dad's sisters. Okay. And that's how they kind of ran into each other and connected. That's awesome. So it seemed like you were kind of miserable playing baseball and tennis. Did your mom see that? And did she try and support you through that time? Um, my mom supported me in everything, you know, anything and everything. Um, I, I, I can't say I was miserable in tennis. I liked tennis that was more of just like taking the lessons and anything like that. I wasn't pushed to like play it competitively. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have any kind of resentment there. It was, it was the baseball because I felt like the baseball was taking away because I had to, it was at the same time as my track season. So I couldn't run track that year. 
So I was, mm. I was angry that I was missing out on track, you know, and mm. playing baseball. Um, but, you know, after that, they realized that that wasn't for me, you know, and so I did the one season and I was done and I got to go back in and play. Mm. And, and yes, mom supported and everything. That's awesome. Were you vocal to your parents or to your dad, especially about your feelings about baseball and missing out on track? Uh, well, I was vocal at the beginning of, yeah, I don't want to do it, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was pushed in at it anyways. Uh-huh. I had, I had to do it. And, and, you, you know, I came from a family where, you know, you can let your disapproval be known, uh, but it, it's not going to matter. And you don't continue, you know, with disapproval towards your parents mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> at, at all. So, um, it, it, I went out and I did it and I did it to the best of my abilities. And I admit I was not good at it. <laughs> you know, I could, I could, I could give a, you know, on the playground and all that stuff. I was, I was good at, you know, throwing the ball, hitting the ball stuff, but that's completely different than when you're playing with kids that are competitive, uh-huh. you know, and they're, and they're living and dying and breathing it, you know, and they get all the little details of, you know, throw the ball this way, all the different rules, what you can and can't do. You know, I, I wasn't interested in it. So I didn't, um, I didn't really go deep into the rules. And when you don't do that about any sport, you can't fall in love with it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's the biggest factor in any success in anything, really, is you have to love what you're doing. Very true. So you got into soccer, and you said you started AYSO, which typically is known as a less competitive situation, but when you started, what was it like for you? Was it competitive, more recreational? Yeah, well, let's let's remember when I started, that's pretty much all there was was AOISF. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, club was just really trying to start. There was no development academies or anything like that. So you're not talking about like, oh, you got to play here because it's the right team. Or oh, when I grew up, you played on the team, be it club or AOISF. You played on the team that was near you. You weren't traveling 10 miles. If I had told my parents what I hear about the stories today, oh, we're traveling an <laughs> hour to get on the right team, my parents would have said, you're not playing that sport. <laughs> That's yeah, it. You're yeah. playing what's right here in your neighborhood. You can forget about that. Um, and 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 I will continue to argue. I think that sometimes that's the best thing because you need to learn, learn a variety of different things. You don't always want to be on the best team. Sometimes you want to be on a team that's not so good so you can you can be uh, a player that learns how to lose, learns how to win, learns how to make your team better, learns how to make uh, your teammates better, yourself better, and find ways to win games that you shouldn't. If you're always going to the best team, you're, ha- you're getting an easy route where your team's always mm-hmm. winning and you think that's the norm. That's not the norm, you know, and it's not yeah. going to help you when you have to deal with those losses in, in, in the sport or in life, you know, in the future. So, Mm-hmm. That, that that's that's my viewpoint you know, on yeah. all of that yeah you can definitely learn more from losing than you ever can from winning in my opinion as well um mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of conflictual opinions about playing competitive games and having scores and leagues and standings at a young age what's your opinion is it all right to start young? Should they wait till a certain age? And if so, what's that age? I, I think you should start from the beginning. It, sh- it, sh- you should, it should always be known. I think there's a big mistake out there that um, 
parents now where we tend to think that to be quite honest, that kids are dumb, you know, just because they're young doesn't mean that they're dumb. Mm -hmm. They know when they've lost a game, they know when uh, they've won a game, you you know, and they can keep count in their own head, you know, of of what's Mm -hmm. going on. You know, there's a realize (laughs) there's this thought that like, Oh, we we just won't keep score. And that makes everything fine. No, that's, that's not it. It, your, your kid's going to know. They're going to know who's winning. They're going to know who's losing. They're going to know who's the better team. They'll just look at it in a different way. Don't think that the kids are stupid. You know? And then there's a, the whole other factor that there's lessons to be learned in every aspect of the game. Now, the question is, are you willing to teach those lessons? Are you just going to kind of uh, comfort the kid all the time and think, okay, everything's fine, 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 and keep them you know, secluded and away from winning and losing? Or can you take those situations and make learning lessons from everyone. If it's winning, if, if their team is winning, it's like, okay, how do you continue to win? What did you do right? What can you do better? How can you be a good winner? How can you interact with the opponent that is losing? You know, those are all things. If you're a team that's on the losing side of it, it's like, how do you react when you've lost? How do you get better and, and not lose the next game? These are important things. It's motivation. I think that's one of the things that we have to make sure that kids have is motivation. You know, you don't want to have it where everything is just like, oh, it doesn't matter. Then where's the motivation for the kid to get better at the sport? You know, Mm -hmm. if it's, there's a way where you can have the scores out there. Yes. Okay. If it's getting like 15 to nothing, okay. You can just stop kind of thinking of what the score is about, but there's lessons to be learned in like, okay, well, we lost really bad. This is how we're going to improve. And then in the next game, if, you, if they're learning the lessons and doing the right thing, they'll see if there's improvement or not. That, that's important. If you just leave it out there where we're not going to have scores at all, th- there's just such a lack of motivation because the kids in the end, if you're, even though they're putting it in their head, they're seeing the parents just being like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's okay. So then, you know, don't get mad at your kid when, you know, the balls are, go, you know, players are running by them and, you, you say, like, why aren't you trying? Well, they're thinking, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they see the parents like, oh, the scores don't matter. Nothing matters. You know, that, so don't get angry. You know, that, that's, a, a, there's a, look, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but this is my opinion on you've got to keep, get kids motivated and competing at a young age, you know, and, mm-hmm. and teach them the lessons from it. Don't think that it's just all, if you lose, that it's just all negative. No, there's positive mm-hmm. lessons that you can take from everything. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other side of that, trying to teach kids to be competitive, sometimes the parents, then they get overly competitive and that brings them in to the child's world on the field. So where is that sweet spot? You know, there's always a sweet spot in something and saying, okay, we need to be competitive, but we also want it still to be about the children and keeping the parents at bay, what do you think the best way to do that is? Well, I, I think, look, there's, there's obviously a, a sweet spot. You know, that's a good way. To, you want your kids to be competitive, but I think you said it, is when the parents start becoming competitive, that's the issue. They're not in the game. <laughs> you know, when you start seeing parents <laughs> screaming and yelling, you know, that's an, that's an issue. You can cheer and you can be 
helpful. You can even, you know, cajole a little bit to say, hey, come on, let's be a little bit more, a little bit more aggressive, be a little bit better at this. But once you start seeing them getting upset and angry, like you see professional athletes on the field, then you know that there's an issue there. They've translated <laughs> whatever's going on with their kids into like their issues and trying to put it out on the field and exposing everybody to it, exposing other parents, exposing the kids on both teams, exposing, you know, kids that are watching the game. That's ridiculous. That's too mm. much. That, and, and, and as I've said, you know, kids aren't stupid. Adults aren't stupid too. We, we all pretty much have a general sense of when parents are going too far. You know, everyone knows there's always that one parent that's like screaming and yelling and all the other parents get quiet because it's just like, geez, what's his problem? You know, or what's her mm -hmm. problem? You know, that there's a general idea and a general sense that there's an issue there. We, we don't have to be like, oh, we've got a market. This is the point and this is what, exactly what you have to do. No, we, we all kind of know. And it's, and it's about parents not taking on the issues on the field to themselves and whatever their mm. individual issues are. And look, I've mm. been, I've been a part of a lot of teams when I was growing up where parents were, you know, red carded, kicked off the field, you know, uh, going outside the gate and screaming and yelling outside the gate, you know, <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, 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 it's happened, you know, from time immemorial, you know, I mean, it's happened, mm way back when and it's going to continue in the future but the best thing is is that we uh, what we can hope for is that you know well we can hope that we're not on a team with a parent like that <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in general i think it's got to be a rule of thumb of the team kind of coming together to every parent saying hey we've got to kind of control our tempers mm. so yeah that, that was kind of leading to my next question say we are on a team with one parent or maybe more than one parent who's like that whose responsibility is it to educate that parent or to try and i guess inform that parent like hey you're probably pushing a little bit too much which can be a really uncomfortable conversation to have whose responsibility is it well it's a it's the individual parent's responsibility first then it's you know the spouse or or girlfriend boyfriend whatever and then it, it's got to be another parent if it's, it's preferably the coach you know stepping up you know, saying, hey, this is the, the team situation. You're making the team uncomfortable. You're making the rest of the parents uncomfortable. You've got to settle down on the sidelines. If that's not, if you can't do that, it'd be preferable if you aren't coming to the game, you know, or you are separating yourself from the group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think worst case scenario is the player gets cut just because of the parent you know, that can be really devastating on so many different levels for that child. Yeah. You see, I, I think that's a mistake. I don't think a coach should ever cut a player because of the parent. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that there's got to be, there, there's got to be a hundred different ways to deal with it before you cut a player because of the parent's issues. You don't judge the player or affect the player because of the parent. Uh, you yeah. know, that's, that's, uh, for me, that's unacceptable. There's, there's, there's got to be something that can be, uh, or many things that can be done before that. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a worst case scenario, but sometimes it can affect a whole team, you know. What were your parents like in a sport that it sounds like they didn't grow up playing and <laughs> you were really getting highly involved in this? What was their involvement like during your soccer career as a youth? My my parents, the, the basically, I, I look 
back now and realize that they were basically a taxi service, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of getting me to different games and different tournaments, you know, and different weekend tournaments. And it, it, to be quite honest, you know, look, it wasn't always negative for them. I look back and understand what was going on, you know, after hours, you know, and we'd go to these little hotels and they'd have like the pool outside and, you know, all the kids are put to bed and like everyone go inside. The parents are going to hang out by the pool for a bit, you know, and they're obviously out there having a few drinks and chatting and laughing it up, you know? <laughs> so they're, they were having a good time on the weekends, you know, it's like a little getaways for them. But, you know, I went to a lot of tournaments over the years, you know, and I'm thankful for them for that because, you know, now with my own kids, I look at like how difficult, you know, that is to do, to give up your weekend. To, to go to these different tournaments, you know, all over the state, you know, sometimes all over the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have two sons now and, and you told me your younger one is playing. What's, what's, I can imagine as somebody who's played at a really, really high level, such as yourself, the highest level in this country to be there as just a dad, got to have some restraint on your part, I imagine. So what's your experience like as a dad now, a soccer dad? It, it, it's uh, interesting. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm pretty, um, I guess, understanding of the situation. Look, my, my nine-year-old doesn't play. He, I, he played to begin with, but, you know, do, it didn't find his way in it, doesn't like the sport. You know, so I said, okay, then you, you don't have to do it. Um, he likes basketball, so he's playing basketball. Though My only issue is that he has to do something. He has uh -huh. to play some type of sport, you know. Uh, my youngest, he likes soccer and basketball. So he's, he's playing the sport, and he, he, he likes it. He loves it. Um, I understand that there's a big difference for uh, a, a professional and a six-year-old. So, so as I've coached professionals, you know, I can understand where it's like you can explain it and stuff like that. Coaching six-year-old, you know, it's like hurting cats. You know? So I have the most respect in the world for these coaches that go out there and, and do that. Like I've done a ton of clinics and appearances over the years where I've had, you know, over 50 kids to myself you know, trying to, trying to deal with them and wrangle them up. So wow. I respect these coaches and they always say, you know, oh, you should come out and do this or, oh, uh, don't get mad at me if I do something wrong. And I'm just literally sitting there just going, I know the pain that this is. <laughs> I'm trying to teach a five and six year old all the basics of the game. I don't wow. think that I would have the patience for it. You know, I could do a little bit here and there with my kid, you know, but you know, number one, kids don't like to listen to their own parents. Number right. two, you know, just young kids, their attention span, they're always over half of the time you're wrangling. It, it's yeah. difficult. So I, I, you know, at this age, I'm just like, hey, coaches, good job. Go for it. I sit back. You know, I if I'm asked anything, I will definitely help <laughs> and put it put my opinion in. But, you, you know, I'm I, I am not one to criticize anyone that's willing to go out and coach five, six, seven year old. Yeah. You have to keep them moving, keep them moving, keep them engaged. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Short activities and a lot of them, you know, so what do you look for? Agree. Yeah. What do you look for in a coach for your child? What are some important traits that you, when you're observing a coach, you're like, I want my child to play for that coach. Uh, yeah. 
it's funny. It, it's you, you want a coach that's active and that truly enjoys the game and teaching the game, you know, and that, and that's important. If it's a coach that look, I don't want a coach that is, Oh, I'm just doing this as a parent volunteer. Cause you know, my kids got to do it. I really don't know anything about the game. I'm just out here, you know, and kick the ball around. No, I want someone that knows the game that's played the game that likes the game and that has a passion for the game. And if they're willing to coach the kids and, and share that passion, that's important for me because that will kind of inspire my kids and give them a little bit of joy playing the game. And that's the most important thing that they learn. They actually learn about the game and enjoy that learning process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that enjoyment's huge, you know, and, and like I said earlier, really you have to fall can in I, love. Can I say something? Yeah, go for can it. Can I say something? Of course. You notice that I did not mention about having a, a coach that wins you know, or Very being true. super competitive at, at that age. That's not what it's about. It's about them learning the game and having fun doing it. If they do that, that competitiveness, competitiveness and being good at the game, that they'll learn that over time. That will come into it. But just, just you don't need the, like, oh, you got to win, you got to win, you got to win at, at the young age. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. Yes, you want to keep scores and understand that, but it doesn't matter because you can teach all the different things you know, within the winning and the losing. It's about them having fun and learning from that coach. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. The, that foundation has to be the enjoyment you're talking about or really creating a love for something. And it's the same at school. When we have meetings with our teachers, we don't care about his our son's grades. We care about the yeah. fact that he's learning to love and every athlete that I've spoken to has a deep, deep love for the sport that they played. And I'm sure the same went for you. And and they've also, Mm -hmm. a lot of them have told me about specific moments where they fell into that deep love for soccer, whatever they played. Do you have a memory of any kind of thing that triggered you into being like, I love this and this is what I'm going to do for my profession for the rest of my life or as much as my life as possible? It's funny, right? Because it's a little bit different for soccer during my time because there was no professional league, you know, here. Yeah. So I always had to think, okay, I'm doing this for fun, but what am I really going to do for a living? You know, uh, that, that right. was, you know, when you're in the high school years, it's just like, Oh, you're just playing it for fun. You know, that's what it's all about. And I can, there, there's a few different moments and, you know, where I just, I loved the sport. And I, I remember one where I was a kid and, you know, I just remember, basically running the whole length of the field and like, you know, all stars and getting a goal, you know, and beating everyone, you know, and, and that was just me running the the whole field and, and scoring and just having the joy of being like free and open, you know, that, that was a good one. When I was older in high school, it was a moment of connecting with the ball. You know, I always used to try to, you know, just try to hit the ball as hard as I could and just slam it. And I remember being at a training session with, you know, funny enough, Eric Winalda and Eric Winalda's dad. And he was kind of coaching us in the training. And he stopped me and pulled me over. He's like, no, no, you don't need to just push through the ball and try to, you know, hit it as hard as you can. So it's all about the connection. And, and mm. you know, it might have been just one of those moments and stuff, whatever. The next ball that came out, I just tried to connect. And it was like one of those perfect hits where it mm. sounds brilliant, comes off the mm. foot just right, and goes into the upper V. And, and they yeah. just started, Eric and his dad started laughing, you know, and I was just like, yes, you know, and they're yeah. like, that's it, that's it. And, you know, that was one of those moments, another moment where I was like, there's, 
there's something. I just learned something important about the game and learning something like that really, you, you know, made me fall in love with the game again. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's about that connection. And again, I, you know, you didn't say a lot of athletes will say, oh, you know, it was this game or I watched this game or this player do something. For you, it was about learning and loving just to learn and to improve. It's, that just shows yeah. the depth right there to me. Yeah, I think, I think it, you know, I think it, a lot of it comes from my, my parents' background. You know, my, do- my dad has a PhD in chemistry. My mom was an English teacher. It's always been about mm. learning, you know, always continuously learning stuff. Wow. That's a deep academic background there. Wow. Yes, indeed. It's amazing. And I think that they're still, well, they, they always wanted me to go back to school and finish up to get my degree since I left early for the yeah. Olympics, you know, <laughs> so I still uh-huh. got a year left for UCLA. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's never too late to go back and they've got online stuff. I'm sure too. You could do from wherever the beach. Anywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm in the process now talking to them. So. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so you know you mentioned i guess academics must have been really high priority for your parents what were some other traits that were really important as they tried to raise you what were some things that you remembered from them uh always to finish what you start you know and I mean, that's a simple way of putting it but they would never let me quit something that was that was very important to them that you've got to continue mm-hmm. to push through always understand that there's going to be um, you, you know, that there's going to be obstacles, forces, people in your way. And you've got to find a way to navigate that, push through, go around, whatever, to get to the goals that you want. And so, so a whole lot of that attitude of not giving up. And I think a lot of it is based off of their upbringing and everything that they went through. You know, obviously in, you know, you know segregation south, <laughs> they, they had a lot of issues that they had to deal with. And so they instilled upon me, uh, you know, that never say die, that never give up attitude. You know, my mom always used to quote, you know, one of my, uh, you know, one of the track lines that they had when I would get awards and track and stuff, it's beat your best. You know, it's like, don't settle for your, your, your top goal at the moment, continue to try to push on, you know, and push beyond. So it was always about beating your best, you know, kind of always doing a little bit more, kind of like I, like you said, you know, always learning a little bit more, always doing mm-hmm. a little bit more. That's awesome. So your parents were, during your youth journey, were chilling in the pool on weekends, you know, hanging out with the other parents, enjoying their time. <laughs> and then yeah. your time for college recruiting came up. How did they support you during that process? And what was your process like then? Because it's completely different the way it is today. Well, first off, I wasn't recruited to college. You know, I was a walk-on at mm. UCLA. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so there was no college recruiting for me. It was after high school, like, was it your junior year when you had to get all the applications out? It was my mom, you know, yeah. helping me with essays and, you know, her being an English teacher. That was helpful. Helping <laughs> me with mm-hmm. essays and stuff that I had to write and send out to the different universities. And, and they were, uh, my mom was a big advocate of, of applying everywhere, you know, she, she was like, like that, that saying, you know, you, you know, you shoot for the stars and you see what you hit on the way down, you know? So I applied yeah. everywhere to within the UC system. And I think I did a flyer at Harvard, you know, as well. <laughs> and, uh, I ended up, you know, I ended up making the, what is it? The interview stage at Harvard, you know, went through that. 
but uh, for the UC system, um, I got accepted, you know, to all the schools that I applied to. I got accepted to all of them, which was fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. And for me, the big decision was really with my mom discussing what was better suited for me. And she was good about that. You know, she had three boys, or, sorry, four boys, three older brothers, and they'd gone through these processes before. And for me, it was, you know, UCLA, you know, it was between thinking about Cal or UCLA, to be quite honest, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but uh, UCLA seemed to be the better choice for me. Went down there, um, did the walk-on situation uh, at UCLA, and fortunately, you know, fortunately ended up, you know, going through that preseason and making the team. Hmm. So how did you get on as a walk-on? What were the steps that you took? <laughs> Well, I was dealing with the coach, you know, there, uh, Ziggy Smith and Dean Wurzberger um, were the coaches at the time. And they said, yeah, you can come out and, and walk, uh, walk on and try out, you know, for the team. And it's all about trying to get through the whole, you know, the, the many people that walked on and through that preseason process. You know, so I had to make sure that I was in shape. I was ready to go and try to you know, take advantage of the situation at hand. It, it wasn't the easiest, you know, to be quite honest. You know, you had my year, UCLA had like, I guess, the best recruiting class of the, in the United States. They had like thought like five of the top picks, you know, of players that were supposed to be, you know, the elite of, hmm. uh, within the United States. And, and it was always interesting. I really didn't know a whole lot about like these U20 teams, U18 teams. I'd never, the farthest I had ever gone was like a, a, uh, a district team and I had gotten cut, you know, a couple of times. So it was something mm-hmm. that I didn't know about. Um, so for me, it was just like a consistent battle of trying to prove myself that I was able and could hang with, you know, the rest of these guys. Mm-hmm. So usually when you're trying to walk onto something, something has to stick out for the coach to be like, okay, yeah, let's take a deeper look at that guy. What do you think it was for you that attracted yourself to the coaches? Uh, three things. Uh, the simple one, my speed, uh, right off the bat, uh, I would say my, my, uh, work ethic, you know, that I was willing to always, you know, work hard. And then, then third, my competitiveness, you know, that's one thing that, you know, most of the other things kind of, kind of go to the wayside, you know, but work ethic and competitiveness, you know, that's still there to this day. (laughs) I compete Mm -hmm. in anything and everything that I do. So you had a pretty good career at UCLA, went on to play professionally, including in Brazil. And I was I was actually born in Brazil and I'm a my family is a big flamengo or family club. Yeah. So and you played for Vasco da Gama. What was your experience like in Brazil? Yeah. Yeah. Vascaino. <laughs> um I I uh you know, well after, you know, UCLA and the Olympics and all that stuff, uh the national team in, ended up spent spending some time down in Brazil, that was, that was fantastic. That was absolutely great. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. It was just like a, it, it was a different style because I had gone to England first, mm-hmm. you know, and it was wor- a very workmanlike mentality in England. Like it's like, you get out, you do your job, you work hard, you get after it day in, day out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And then you get to 
Brazil <laughs> and it was such a different, you know, mentality where like it's the beautiful game. Uh -huh. Oh, we'll get to it. Yes, when you're on the field, you work hard, you get everything done, but it, 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 it's a joy to be here, you know, and, uh -huh. and being in Vasco and I was living in, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Rio and on uh -huh. Copacabana Beach. Yeah. You know, oh. It's such a different wow. lifestyle, you oh, yeah. know, and uh, I, I just remember that I would have you know, they had a taxi picking me up every day. And I remember sometimes like a training was supposed to be at like 10 o'clock all the time. And sometimes I get there at 10 and you know, <laughs> training should start at 11. Uh -huh. And I'm like, what is going on here? You know, you know I'm used to this, you know, this, this English style where it's like, you know, on time's late, you're there 15, 20, you're like there 45 minutes before, you know, all that type of stuff. And I would get there and I'd be sitting around for two hours, you know, before practice starts. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was very, very different. Um, it, it, but it was fantastic. I, what I did love is how, uh, living in Rio that at, at Vasco football was, was, uh, was part of everything in society hand in hand with the beach. Mm -hmm. You know, it yeah. was like the beach is part of everything. Football was part of everything. Mm -hmm. And I love how it came to a head when you go to Copacabana beach, they're playing the football league, you know, yeah. it was great guys are on the computers in their speedos, you know, doing work <laughs> and then, Oh, it's my turn. Okay. Then, then they go in, you know, and then they're playing football for an hour. Then they go back when they're out and they're put on their computers. It was, it was a different world, a, a completely different world, but I, I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. You, you spoke it perfectly right there. It's a different world and the people are so full of joy and love and that's how they approach life. And it's just so freeing and, and, and really it's enjoyable <laughs> when anytime oh, yeah. you're in Brazil, you know, yes, it is. <laughs> it's awesome. So, you know, a couple of things, you know, when I was cyber stalking you for a good reason, of course, um, you know, I was looking at your stats in, your 98 season with LA Galaxy. You had 19 goals. It seemed like that was your your the best year statistically in your career. What was special about that season? What was your mentality going into that season and what do you attribute your success to? Um, you know, it's funny. It, it's all my best seasons seem to be like the World Cup years, you know. That's always <laughs> you know, you get that little extra motivation. Uh 98 was a time where, you know, you're, you're 28, 27, 28 year old, you're in your prime. Um, for me, you know, I was doing all the extra little things. I was doing the, the extra workouts. I would get up early. I was doing a certain diet, you know, before, uh, this is, this is a time before everyone was really focusing on diets and stuff. Um, I was doing, you know, the balancing out the, the protein, carbs and fats and all this stuff where I, 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 I just took care of every aspect of my body. I was doing workouts uh, before um, training. I was after, after games, you know, even when we were on the road, I was getting up early before the bus and, and just doing little, little workouts and stretches and cool downs and different things to make sure that my body was in peak performance. And, you know, mm -hmm. so it kind of uh, bled over into the team a little bit and, and the others kind of followed along. Uh, we had a, a fantastic group that just loved being with each other and playing the game. Welton was my uh, cohort, you know, up top, mm. you know, I was mm. in a little bit of a diff different position as I was a striker uh, with mm. Welton. And I, I think it, it, it's always interesting when people ask me about this here, I always talk about, we had confidence like no other, you know, we didn't, 
think about that we could possibly lose a game. Mm. We would, would be on like the team bus, you know, as we're going to the game. And the question was always like between me and Welton, and, and, and I'll tell you this, and we were literally talking and betting. Players were betting, going, who's going to score first? Five bucks on Kobe, five bucks on Welton. <laughs> now, now pay attention to that. It wasn't if we were going to score. It was like, who's going to score first? You know, that, that's that's a pretty solid wow. type of view of yourself and the team and everything where we just went, you know, we went in, in a good way all the way around. And the funny thing is that people don't know this, you know, about that team. And when we lost in the playoffs, our coach, you know, and I'm still bitter about this today, the <laughs> night before the game started talking to players about how we're going to play different and switched oh, no. up the lineups and changed no. things up. And that's when we got the smack, you know, yeah. he switched it up and, you know, the, the players got angry, players got pissed, players are up all night, angry players are going to the coach in the middle of the night, you know, our, our coach during the game, he wasn't on the sidelines, like when the game was starting, he wasn't around, he was, he was caught up doing other stuff with fans and stuff, it, it was like, oh, he got wow. too caught up in stuff where, where to this day, us as players, when we talk about that, we're just like, what was he thinking? He thought yeah. it was a coach that thought it was all about him. And it just, and he, of course, he does it at the wrong time. But it's, yeah. it's like, why don't they just wait until it's all over? Then you can say, oh, yeah, it was me, me, me. Don't try to start making moves and changes in the playoffs. You know? yeah. <laughs> we were just like, what are you doing? No, we can't. Do so, so it really threw everything sideways. But, but it was a, a tight group of guys you know, that really got along, you know, through, throughout the whole time where everybody was a friend. Wow. You had chemistry. That's important. Chemistry was, without a doubt. Yeah. Oh man, that kills me to hear about your coach. And, and that's something when I work with individual athletes and, and when I do workshops with teams and other groups is that a big part of our, our experience is all based on our thinking. And our thinking can come from a place of positivity and essentially love, or it can come from our ego. And our ego is always has this idea of fear. And it seems like your coach started to come with this fear, like, what if we don't win with this team? And said, now, what can I do? And he got wrapped up in his thinking and said, all right, we need to make all these changes because maybe they know what we're going to do already. When essentially it sounded like he had the perfect mixture with your team already and should have just let you go at it yeah just let us let them play <laughs> wow all right so typically in my interviews i just go with the flow of things and the conversation which we've done up to this point but i do want to introduce a lightning round for for this episode and I'm, i would invite you to be my guinea pig if you're open for that sure yeah not a problem all right. They can be short and sweet answers, or if you want to go into a little bit more detail, you know, it's up to you as well. So okay. here we go. Best team, best team that you ever played against. Ooh, best team that I ever played against. I'd have, uh, man, are you talking national team or club team? Any team you want. Okay. I always think that there was a, a, a team, the most difficult team. I'd have to say Brazil '94 World Cup. That's mm, with Romario and Romario and Bebeto. Yeah, that was the one-zero July Fourth game. Right? Yep. 
we were even we we're even up a man and we still couldn't uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> get a, they, they still controlled the game wow yeah yeah that was a special team i remember uh but you guys did amazing you, you know the whole country was behind you in that one this is awesome all right best player you ever played against in your career best player uh i, I mean i played against um ronaldinho i mean he was one of the you know, most talented players when he was young. He, I think he was like 19, 20, stuff like that when he was playing oh, for, wow. for Brazil and we were in a tournament in Mexico. Wow. Toughest stadium to play in. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say Azteca, you know, for, for me. That was mm. always difficult with the altitude, uh, the smog back in the day, the heat playing at 2 p.m. and just, you know, yeah. definitely some fans that are rooting against you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah. b- best up-and-coming U.S. player not currently on the U.S. national team. Men's national oh, team, I see. Not on the, not on the, uh, a U.S. player. I'd say Kai Jones. He's about six years old, and he's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is no, your? No, no, to be honest, I, I don't know a lot of the the, the younger players, you know, uh-huh. to, to be quite honest. But watch out for Kai; he's going to be good. All right, all right. I'm <laughs> I'm waiting. I saw he was left footed, right? I saw a video left footed. Yeah, he, all right. he's a lefty. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to be looking out for him. Uh, what is your favorite moment in soccer in a game that you played in? The, fa- the favorite moment. Yep. Uh, get cheese. There, there's. There's quite a few. Um, I would say there's, you know, winning my first MLS Cup, you know, and Ruiz scored the game winner against New England. You know, that was that was fantastic in 2002. And then I also got to say, surprise, surprise, in 2002, it was uh, the final whistle when we beat Mexico, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the World Cup. Awesome. Hardest. And also, work. I have to say, I'd also have to say. Rafa Marquez in that same game getting the red card oh, and yeah. he's still being okay to uh, get up and still continue because that really damaged their hopes of coming back. Yeah. Awesome. Who is the hardest working player that you played with? Hardest working player that I played with. Uh, over the years, that's a, that's a bit of a difficult one. <laughs> It's funny. I think all the guys worked hard. You know that that I know that I know of. Mm-hmm. That always give like the, the extra effort. I know that you know one player that stands out for me that he would do a lot of extras. That would be that people didn't realize was like an Eric Winalda. You know, mm-hmm. like he would do. You know, he had all his issues and stuff off the field and different things. But in, in his day, he would put in the work when it came to soccer. Mm. He'd be doing the extra drills and, you know, and the extra plays. And mm. yeah, he could be a pain, you know, on your team or against your team. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he did put in work, you know, towards to be what he was. Mm. That's awesome. And I think a lot of players, young players, but even professional players don't understand that in order to get to the highest of where you are, you've got to put in those extra hours. Yeah, well, let me put it. Let me tell a little story then for for those that you can put this in anywhere you want about that I know about Eric Winalda. Um, people forget that he was considered the the best striker that the U.S. 
had ever had. And he was proving it as he was one of the first ones to break into the Bundesliga. And when he went to the Bundesliga for that first year, you know, for the first half of the season, he was the leading scorer. I mean, think about that. <laughs> That's wow. unheard of. People, yeah. don't, people forget about this stuff. He was the leading scorer for the first year in the Bundesliga. Uh, I mean, sorry, for the first half of the year in the Bundesliga. Uh -huh. Now, what I'm, what I'm getting at is a lot of people think, oh, he's gifted, you know, he's, he's just naturally has that talent, or he's lucky. You know, and these are the things that all people say about a lot of athletes where they don't understand. Uh -huh. you know? But I remember some of my buddies that I grew up with, and this was while I was still in high school, and um, sorry, uh, this is when I had just got to college. And it was my first year and Eric was down at San Diego state. And these guys, I came back like in, in the off season and it was like December or something like that after season. And these guys had talked to their parents and my parents and the parents kind of like relayed the story. And my mom told me that they were surprised. My old teammates were surprised because they were at San Diego state too. And they said, Hey mom, you know, this is them talking, going, Hey mom, it, like it, this was weird. And, like I saw Eric Winalda, and, and now, mind you, these guys played against Eric and everything, but they didn't go to college because they weren't good enough or they got other things that kind of pulled them away. Uh -huh. And they were like, yeah, I saw Eric, you know, it, he was out on the soccer field and there was no one else out there. And he was just dribbling the ball and shooting in the net. And he was <laughs> out there for like about 30, 40 minutes by himself, you know, wow. just kicking the ball and shooting it into the net. And they were shocked <laughs> that it wasn't the regular soccer training that mm. it was after season that Eric was out there putting an extra time on his own to get to another level, you know, and that, and I, I, I laughed inside because a lot of those guys didn't like Eric and they would talk about him and they would always go, Oh, he's lucky. Oh, I don't know how he does this. But that was, I think, an eye-opener for them as they matured a little bit more to realize that people that are making it to the higher level, they are putting in the work. You might not see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you might be surprised like, and, and wonder how they're doing it. But I, trust me, everyone, I've done it. Eric's done it. You, you know, all these guys in different sports, the LeBron, the Kobe Bryant, everything, they've all, we've all put in the extra work to get to where we were. Mm -hmm. yep got to have a deep deep love in order to do that as well you know yeah have you heard about that line from kobe bryant where he tells the reporter the reporter's asking about his work habits and you know how he's so good and all this and he just responds have you seen uh la at 4 a.m basically letting him know that he gets up at 4 a.m every day to to work at his stuff to be better than the other guy. Mm. Wow. It's amazing. And with Winalda, I think the thing that struck me is that those people were saying he was there for 30 minutes. It, he wasn't there for three hours, you know, so it takes extra work, but really 30 minutes of extra work can get you a lot further in life. You know, it's, it's the quality oh. of what you're doing. Yeah, that, that, it doesn't take a lot. I mean, that's one of the things that I would do after training. Right? As a winger, I work on my crossing, and I would take 10 minutes, you know, and, and, and that's it. You can do a lot in, in 10 minutes. And, I, and this is just one of the things that I would do. It's like 10 minutes. I would go five minutes from the right side and just cross the ball for five minutes. Mm 
Mm. You know, you can get in, you know, your leg can be hurting after five minutes of just, you know, drib- dribbling, <laughs> yeah. making a move and crossing and putting in a quality cross. You could do like 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, crosses. And then mm. I do the same thing from the left side. And that's only like 10 minutes. But if you think about that, if you do that every day, you know, if you're doing that, uh, you know, five, six days a week, all of a sudden you got an hour extra than the other person, yeah. you know, four hours a month, you know, and, and, it, and it adds up. Absolutely. All right, back to the lightning round. I think we're getting away from the word lightning, but that's all right. We're flowing oh, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, best person to room with when you were on the U.S. men's national team? Ernie Stewart, roomie. Hmm. <laughs> why? Why is that? Yeah, he was he was my roomie for years. We had a great time together. We had a good uh, rapport. You know, we just we were. You know, both the wingers together. I, I was playing the right. He was playing the left. I was playing the left. He was playing the right. And we were roommates together. We just had a good time laughing, laughing at the other guys, laughing at each other. You know, music in the room all the time. Uh, we were the room that everyone came to to have a good laugh. Uh, nice, awesome. Who had the best hair of the '94 U.S. Men's World Cup team? Include yourself if you want to. I did, of course. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. I just set you up for easy I was question, setting though. trends. Remember back there in 94, I was setting trends. You know, everyone's got like the dreads and hanging and trying to show how cool it is. But back then, yeah. you know, not many people were, were rocking it. That's right. Um, soccer aside, what would your dream job be? Soccer aside, what would my dream job be? I'd say uh, probably like an environmental lawyer. You know, huh. those lines. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. That's what that was my plan. Wow. Uh, the game plan, maybe do, you know, go to law school and then do a few years of maybe like scripts and then, uh, you know, figure out what I was going to do from there. Yeah. Wow. So what pulled you to want to do environmental law? I always had a, a thing for like being outdoors and in nature. And I love, I love travel and going to different places. Um, I love the, the environment, you know, not, not as, you know, it's termed today to include anything and everything. But, you know, you have to remember, like, back then, we're talking, like, in the 80s, this is before there was this, you know, like, environment, environment is everything, you know, now. This is uh, way back when where, uh, you know, I wanted to, I, I thought that was a route that would be of interest to me that kind of touched on everything that I thought was interesting. Mm. You know, and I had a, a friend, a friend's dad was a lawyer for, like, mobile oil, actually, you know, and he kind of said, no, noticing my interest that that might be a route that I'd want to go. Hmm. Wow. Amazing. That's awesome. Well, it's never too late, you know, never too late. Now you're going to finish yeah, your that's, degree that's at UCLA, you go to law school. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Two kids. Yeah. No yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the best beach in Rio? Uh, Barra de Tezuka. Ah, that's, like. that's uh, my, yeah. That's no, my I family mean, that, is. That, that was nice. To, what's that? That's where my family lives. Baja. Ah, that, nice, nice. Yeah. That was uh, like, like back then. It was like a little bit more secluded than I'm sure it is now. Um, uh-huh. You know, so I, I love that's where I lived uh, for the second half of my, the part of the time that I was there. Oh, awesome! Was in Baja. Um, but I also I like Leblon too. You know, uh-huh. I mean, Copacabana. You know, it's very, you know, it's great. It's world renowned, very touristy. But you know, yeah. for me, I like I love Leblon, and then living in Baja was nice. Yeah, awesome. 
So this one, you can take more time. It's not part of the lightning round. What advice for parents who are raising athletes do you have? I, I think I've said it, you know, multiple times, you know, and it, it seems like a, an old cliche, but make sure that they're having fun and that they're learning. That That's important, that they're learning within the game, not just playing it, but they're learning about the game. If they have a, a, a joy for playing whatever sport it is and they're learning within it, that joy only increases. It's when they don't know what's going on and things start to become confusing that I, I see the kids tend to kind of drop off their interest. Awesome. Well, Kobe, I know you're super busy. I really appreciate your time today. Your words have been really, really impactful and you know, it's a pleasure to speak with you and best wishes, whether you become your, the environmental lawyer that uh, you dreamed of or anything else you have going on in your future. Best wishes. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So what were your biggest takeaways? Kobe had a very stable and loving family life. You know, I was really struck by what he said regarding being on the best team. Now, I've coached individual soccer players who came to me to try and improve their technical ability with the idea that they wanted to make a better team that they were playing on. Now, there's one in particular that comes to mind that worked so hard and improved so much but didn't make the team they wanted to only to be completely distraught and almost give up soccer because of that. You know, The improvement was overlooked completely and this particular player felt that his sense of self-identity and importance was based on making the particular team. What also was overlooked was something that Kobe mentioned, that not being on the best team can teach players so much more than being on the best team. Players can learn how to lose, how to win, how to make your team better, how to make yourself better, and so many more lessons in life. They learn so much more about life, let alone sports, on a team that's not the best. Just take it from what Kobe Jones went through. His path wasn't the easiest. He didn't play on the best youth team. And he didn't play on a development academy team because they didn't have him back then. And he had to walk on at UCLA after not being recruited at all. And still ended up playing professionally and in three World Cups. And ended up being the most capped player ever for the U.S. men's national team. Now it's definitely easy for parents to get wrapped up in what team their child is going to be on and really easy to become fearful of what might happen to them if they're not on the quote-unquote best team. We can lose sight on the fact that there is still an abundance of opportunity for players to play in front of college coaches if that's the path that they want to take or to play in intense and high-level games if that's what they want for their child. And we can lose sight of the best way for children and even adults to learn And that's to face adversity. Think about your life for a second. When did you learn the most? What experiences did you have that you learned the most from? Was it from the quote-unquote victories or quote-unquote failures, wins or losses, mistakes or success? Everything in life can be a lesson, but the best ones to learn from are the ones that came from a place of emotional distraught. We can choose to get caught up in the distraught and believe life is unfair, that everyone has it out for us, or we can keep moving forward and know that we grow best with a mindset that we are limitless and we owe it to our children to teach them to do the same. 
I hope you enjoyed this awesome interview with Kobe Jones, and I'd love to hear what you think about it. Please feel free to email me at gabe at aclearmind.com or reach out to me on social media. You can find those links on my website, and that is aclearmind.com. And you can also join our Clarity for Parents of Athletes group on Facebook. Just search and request to join the group, and I'll approve you. As always, thanks for listening. Much love to you and many blessings.